Our conversation today is with uh, author Roland Merulo. Uh, he's an award-winning author of 24 books, including 17 works of fiction. His book, Breakfast with Buddha, was a nominee for the International Impact Doubling Literary Award. His latest book, Once Night Falls, was selected as a November 2019 pick by Amazon First Reads Editors. He has his undergraduate degree from Boston University and a master's in Russian language and literature from Brown University. Thank you so much, Roland, for joining us today. My pleasure, Ben. Nice to be here. So we recently launched a program on pluralism, which is an important aspect of a liberal democracy. Uh, we launched that program here at the Mercator Center at George Mason University. And, and when we say pluralism, we mean, you know, how do we live and you know, coexist peacefully with each other amidst very deep divides and, and differences? And we're seeing depolarization and division that, that make it difficult for us to accept you know, plural, pluralism. So, so your recent piece in Persuasion is very timely and speaks to how we're taking liberal democracy uh, for, for granted. You talk about how we see people flirting with authoritarian means for getting their way on a variety of issues. I wanted to get your take first on, on why you, you think this is. I think it's very complicated. I mean, the, um, I've been following the political conversation in America since I was literally, since I was a little kid, my dad was involved in politics. And I wrote about a 20-part series on the 1996 presidential primaries and election for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I travel a lot. I've worked overseas a lot. I've traveled around this country a lot. And the whole subject fascinates me and, and these days particularly disturbs me. I come from a real working class background. I lived in a working class city right outside of Boston for 25 years. And I still have relatives there. I go there all the time. And, and I also have, I actually have two degrees from Brown. And I, you know, I'm kind of a member of the liberal elite. But I really have one foot in the, in the, it's the white working class world. And, um, some of my friends are poor. Some of them are working class. Some of my relatives, same thing. So I feel like I have a fairly good lens into both those worlds. And it, it's sad to me that they can't speak to each other. To, to try to answer your question, I think part of it is humility on the, on the part of the, um, the liberal elite. I don't think I encounter some of my colleagues, I guess would be the word, even though I don't work in university anymore, who have a tremendously difficult time speaking to working people. And that, that would be one aspect of the problem. Another aspect is the um, polarization of the media. You know, you have people who only watch Fox News and people only watch MSNBC, and it doesn't foster a good cross-the-line communication, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also cite humorlessness, you know, especially you know, canceling comedians and restrictions on artistic expression, it's mm -hmm. especially given concerns over cultural appropriation or othering, and a willingness to believe and spread misinformation on topics people do not like the reality of, especially the results of the 2020 election, mm -hmm. as symptoms of this sort of slippage into um, authoritarian mindsets. Could you explain a little about how these work and if, if they build on each other in a way? Yeah, I should say first, um, and the piece was partly about my time in the Soviet Union. I worked in the Soviet Union for 28 months between 1977 and 1990. And so I'm particularly sensitive to Soviet-style authoritarianism. 
And I see, I see the tendency on both the right and the left. I mean, the right, obviously, they're messing with elections. They're preparing the ground to really mess with the elections in uh, 2022 and 2024. And that's the foundation of democracy. If you mess with that, you're done. you don't have democracy. Uh, on the left, it's more, you mentioned cultural appropriation and othering, which are terms that writers deal with these days. It's, a, it's an attempt to uh, really forcibly limit people's ability to say what they want to say. And I think it's uh, counterproductive to the movement that those people want to see happen in, in the United States. It really, you know, to, I've written three novels from the point of view of women. I couldn't do that now. You know, I've written about Russia. I have characters who are Russian, who are different races, who are Cuban, who are, you know, old, young. That's what novelists have done since the beginning of the existence of the novel. And now people on the left are saying that I have no right to do that. It's really sad to me personally. I mean, but it's sadder to me nationally that that we we don't look at people through any kind of individual lens anymore. It's all about labels. And I don't think that's fosters communication at all. Yeah. You, you mentioned living in the former Soviet Union for 28 months. Mm-hmm. It'd be great to hear um, your experiences living there and, you know, so sort of the underground experiences and perspective living, living there and how that informs some of your, your views now as you're, you're thinking and writing about these issues? I worked, during the Cold War, the United States put together traveling cultural exchange exhibitions to try to get, get the Soviets to have a little bit of a window on the West because, as I'm sure you know, their information was totally controlled by the government. And so we sent these exhibitions, which were actually more like traveling museums. They were huge, 10,000 square feet, filled with incredible displays. And we, we brought them all across the country with Russian-speaking Americans, including me. And I, I should say, none of us was ever told that we could or could not say anything. There was not that kind of propaganda. And sometimes, often, 15,000 people a day would come to the exhibition. There would be lines literally a mile long out the door in snowstorms because the Soviets were so curious. So we traveled the length and breadth of the country. We worked together with Soviet workers. Uh, I had different jobs at the three different tours that I was there. And we, you know, we lived in Soviet hotels. We went to dinner at the homes of people. I mean, it was a very thorough exposure to the life there. And the things that I saw were, they were terrible. I mean, they were what you would expect from an authoritarian regime. People who couldn't say what they wanted to say for fear of being sent to the camps or losing their jobs or losing their apartment. Police beating people with no recourse. There was no, there was no such thing as suing anybody about anything and hoping for any kind of reasonable outcome. You couldn't leave the country. Soviets could not leave the country. You know, I took the train from Moscow to, to uh, Helsinki when I left the first time, and the train stopped at the Soviet border, and they had 
German shepherds sniffing underneath the cars to make sure nobody was holding on under there trying to get out of the country. So, you know, I saw, I saw horrible things and I spoke to people who'd been in the camps and who'd lost relatives in the camps and um, who lost their jobs, who'd been beaten nearly to death by the KGB. I was personally interrogated by, you know, in the locked train station. You know, I mean, we saw some horrible things and it, um, and I know this is true for the people I worked with, the other Americans that became, we became highly sensitized to that and greatly appreciative of the freedoms that we have in this country. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You, you said in your uh, persuasion piece that we've lived so long, and I'm quoting here, we've lived so long with our freedoms that we've come to think they are automatic, impregnable, a birthright instead of a way of life that needs to be continually nurtured and protected. Exactly. So, yeah, and I, as I was reading that, I was, I was wondering whether you had any lessons for us on, on how we might nurture these freedoms. You know, obviously, most people would agree that we're not living in the Soviet Union, but right. how do we preserve the ideals for, for future generations? First, we respect the sanctity of the vote, which we are in the process of not doing. Second, we allow people to say things that are upsetting to other people as long as they're not hateful or really obviously inducing violence. I think we have to be tall, we have to be tolerant of that kind of thing. If you look at some of the comedian routines of the 50s and 60s and 70s, people said stuff that it, it, I'm sure it was offensive. Some of it was offensive to me as an Italian American, you know, some making fun of the way my grandfather spoke and that, but you have to, you have to be a little bit resilient and say, okay, they're making a joke. I don't like the joke, but they're making a joke. They're not coming from a place of hatred. I think most people know when someone's coming from a bad place. And I, I think we've in trying to reduce offense in the country, we've gone too far and we've really policed speech to too great an extent. So the, Again, to me, on the right and the left, the right is much more guilty of messing with the elections. The left is, I think, much more guilty of messing with the language. But both of those things impinge on freedom, the way I think of it. Yeah. And, and you know, in your um, post-2016 election piece in the um, Chronicle of Higher Education that highlights an inability or unwillingness among people to empathize with others who are different from them in, in worldview or yeah. lived experience and, and you know you mentioned um growing up with some of these people and and um you mentioned humility as one thing that's lacking mm -hmm. uh, i imagine that you think empathy is is one of the things that you need to have for people of of different backgrounds because you know some of these people feel like they've been mocked uh, you talk about mockery yeah. in, in that piece and other forms of denigration as a result of a lack of you know they may be in a different place than than the others but what is it in your background that gives you, I mean, in addition to, you know, growing and, and living amongst uh, some of these people, you, you know, I, I learned that you um, have had jobs like a toll booth operator and you've been a carpenter, you know, and, and so it seems as though you have uh, some experiences, um, you know, beyond just having family with, with these people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I feel very lucky um, that I have had those experiences. I think purposely after college, tried to, to do different kinds of things rather than go into a, a softer career. 
and I did drive a cab and I did, I was a carpenter for seven years. I was writing at that time. I wasn't making any money from writing. And also I'm very close to my family members who, you know, my brother's a custodian, you know, he doesn't have a high school. He doesn't have a college education. His wife doesn't have a high school education. And I see them all the time. I talk to them every few days. It's not an abstract thing to me. And so I, I feel very grateful uh, that I've had those experiences. And not only, you know, I went to Exeter Academy. I went to Boston University. I got two degrees from Brown. I, I you know, I've been to Italy 12 times on vacation. I have a very in some ways, luxurious life. I'm not a wealthy person, but I've had a very comfortable life. And so I'm glad to have half of one foot in that other, that other part of America. Yeah. And um, much of what you write is in the fiction genre as well. And, and what role do you see fiction and, and storytelling playing in helping people to become more, more empathetic and to overcome, you know, one's own, you know, self-righteous feelings and perceptions about issues. Can can fiction help build empathy, you think? I love that question. <laughs> because I feel like a novel is is a study of of the individual, you know. The great Gatsby is not about a type, it's about Jake Gatsby. Virginia Woolf wrote not about I mean, obviously, it was set in a certain class in, in Great Britain, but it was about individual people. Mrs. Ramsey is an individual person, and the depth and complexity of the individual is exactly the thing that the novel explains and explores, I would say. And to turn the novel into a political document and say... I mean, some novels obviously are political. There's the political dimension to many of the things I've written, but it it's more, to me, it penetrates to a level below the surfaces, below what you look like, what your skin color is, what your gender is, what your politics are, what your age is. It penetrates into the mysterious depths of a human individual in all our complex psychology and psychologies and i think if we were able to relate to each other on that level it would be a fundamentally different scene in america you know people you know buddha said life is suffering you know everybody suffers in some way that should be a unifying principle at least of the american conversation and it is not and and i think the novel displays that suffering and hope and striving in ways that no other art form can do as well. A film can do it, but not with the depth and length that a novel can do it. Yeah, I really like that. You know, some of the conversations we've had previously with other guests have been about um, polarization and how much we are so saturated by by politics. And it seems as though we we encounter this on a on a daily basis i was wondering uh, you know what the role of solitude in one's life um, might play in sort of stepping away from sort of the daily political noise and i bring this up because i listened to a conversation you had um, not too long ago that 
in that you mentioned that you live in a very remote uh, part of the country where you you can't at the time you couldn't even have Skype and you know that that you know it gives you a chance to write and and do what you do. Um, so I was wondering sort of the role of you know quietness and and how that can help lower the temperature on, on some of the polarization and division that we've seen in in our society. Um, the, a recent um, philosopher we talked to said. You know, we need that sort of solitary moment to reflect on on who we are, to reflect on uh, sort of the differences around the world, and also to appreciate uh, those those things. I just wanted to to give you a chance to reflect on that a little bit. Sure, I I won't get the expression correctly, but it's something like all the trouble in the world comes from people's inability to sit quietly in their room for an hour and do nothing. <laughs> And I understand that. I mean, I've had a meditation practice for 40 years. And what that does is help you examine what's going on in your brain, you know, and sometimes what's going on is not very nice, you know, and it's flawed and it needs observation and adjustment. And I think um, we don't have much contemplative time in our society now, even you know, I'm sure you, you're in a doctor's office sitting there and everybody takes out their phone for the five minutes they have to wait, including me. I do the same thing. You know, when do we ever just sit quietly someplace and just watch what's going on in our brains? And what's going on in our brains is the beginning of everything. That's that the root of what we end up doing. And so I wish there were a little more of an emphasis on contemplative time in a society, but I have no idea how we could possibly do that. It's just so much in the opposite direction, you know? Um, But I think it's helpful to spend a little time alone. I think it's helpful to spend a little quiet time and just, you just take a quiet walk in nature. You don't have to have a formal meditation session or anything like that, you know, but we, we're, if you go to a hockey game, you know, in between, plays they're playing super loud music if you go to the beach people are playing loud music on the radio and i play golf and golf used to be a place where you really were supposed to be quiet and now people are riding around in their carts their golf carts playing loud music it's like we're afraid of you know just a little bit of internal ponder a little a little bit of quiet time a little bit of self-reflection I think that would be helpful. I don't see how we can institute it. One thing I do want to say to go back to an early question, mm-hmm. I don't think I answered very well, was one thing I think that would foment a better channel, a better discussion across the different lines that we have would be if we had some kind of a national volunteer requirement where you had to serve for a year, no matter your station in life. You don't have to serve in the military. You could. You could serve in a hospital. You could serve mentoring kids. I mean, there's a lot of different. You could do something in nature, you know, cleaning the forest so they reduce the risk of forest fires, whatever it might be. I think if every every young person had to do that for even six months, we'd understand each other better. We'd feel more like a community and less like uh, various groups. You, you served in the Peace Corps, right? Did, did that foster a sense of community within you? What did you think of your other colleagues in, in the Peace Corps as well? No, that's a great idea. And it's, 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 um, 
I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. What it, what I think it does is, is help, helps us have a clearer view of the way we live more than any good we may have done in the rest of the world. I, and I know there were Peace Corps volunteers where I was who said they, meaning the people in Micronesia, should send Peace Corps volunteers to us <laughs> because they live in, in a wiser fashion than we do. So I think it's been helpful to, and even if you're not in the Peace Corps, if you just travel and, and experience other ways of life with an open mind, you can come back to America and say, you know, they do that much better than we do. Why don't we try to adjust our society, our, our, uh, our assumptions? Yeah. You mentioned uh, meditation a couple of times. So I wanted to give you a chance to uh, touch on spirituality a little bit. I know that in both your fiction and nonfiction work, uh, there is a focus on religion, faith or spirituality. I'm curious what these terms mean to you and uh, why you think it is important to address them in, in one's own life. That's uh, a huge part of my life. I actually, the words make me a little uncomfortable. Spirituality, I, I mean, I use the word. It, it makes me uncomfortable because I feel like it it excludes certain people or they exclude themselves when they hear that word as if it has to mean going to synagogue or mosque or church, or, you know, and I don't think of it that way at all. To me, spirituality means just thinking about what's going on. Like, why are you here? You know, we really talk about something we take for granted. You know, you are an individual consciousness on a spinning ball in the middle of space. You know, what's that all about? You know, and you don't, this, I, I don't believe in, having an answer for that but to think about it would be nice you know it might and to think about the fact that at, at some point you're, you're not going to be that you know you're not going to be in this body you're going to die and then maybe nothing happens maybe something else happens I'm not going to say I know because I don't know but I think it's valuable to consider that to step away for a minute from you know the latest paying of a bill or playing of a golf game or watching a show on TV or whatever it is that people love to do and just say, what is going on? You know, and I find like reading across the religious spectrum to be fascinating because different religions have different explanations for that and different ideas. And also People like somebody like Walt Whitman, who's not tradi traditionally thought of as speaking out of a particular religion, but he was looking at the big picture and saying, what, you know, what's going on here? What are we doing here? I think it's actually the function of art in general. You know, when you paint a still life, what's that all about? You know, why would someone care to paint a bowl with three pears and a banana in it? You know, why? Because they're trying to make you look at it. Instead of just saying, oh, there's a banana, I'll grab it and eat it. You know, it's, it's like there's something beautifully mysterious about that. And I think, to me, the function of all art, dance, theater, music, is to push you into a little bit of a different mental zone and have you pay attention in a different way. Uh, we've had some conversations with some, some guests who've said that, you know, an appreciation for art uh, can give you some tools to uh, appreciate uh, the differences that we have in, in, in our world. Yeah. And I, I know that you've taught in, in, in colleges a few times. 
Um, you know, do you have any um, insights or tools from your experiences as a uh, professor in in sort of fostering more more civil discourse? Uh, a lot of our you know uh, listeners are you know are in academia, either professors or they're um, working on the administrative side, and and, and um, it'd be interesting to, to get your thoughts on you know approaches that are, that may have worked in in your classrooms. I have a lot of thoughts about academia these days, and I <laughs> uh, I love the idea of teaching people. I was walking around the Brown University campus yesterday and just marveling at it. At you know what a beautiful thing an institution of higher learning actually is. Yeah passing on knowledge in all these different areas to a younger generation, what could be more valuable than that? You know, I, I do feel that there's a, there has grown an intolerance in some of those institutions, an inability to, to listen to somebody who's going to say something that bothers you, that upsets you. That's an opportunity to me. I like to be able to talk across uh, the Grand Canyon that stands between my ideas and some of the ideas of the people that I know and love or work have worked with. And I think that's um, some academics are shutting that down. And I find it terrible, actually. I think that they should be smarter than that. They should allow somebody to come on campus who's going to say something, not, not hate speech, I would draw the line at inciting violence or hatred. But I think that definition is too broad now. And, you know, someone can come up, should be able to come on campus and say something that upsets the students or some of the students and let that foster a discussion rather than shutting that down, which sometimes the discussion is fostered. And sometimes too often of late, I think, uh, we won't. We don't want to listen to those people. It upsets us to listen to those people. Okay, be upset. It's okay to be upset. It can be good to be upset, not not out of hatred. You know, not out of just purposely trying to provoke someone, but speaking something that you know. If you say something I don't like to hear, to me, that's an opportunity. Maybe I can learn from you. Maybe we can. That can foster a discussion, however difficult. Anybody who's ever been married for a long time or in a long-term relationship should understand that. You know, that person, the other person is going to do things that you don't like or say things that you don't like. And you can have a giant fight, you can get divorced, or you can talk about it. You know, and and I would prefer to try to talk about it at least as a first step, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Go- going back to, you know, our um, discussion of quietness, you know, and it's it's understand understandable that you know you can't make everyone in society you know do that. But do you have any advice for individuals who might want to better assess what's going on in, in their minds with with quietude? Keep a journal. Okay. You know, commit to five to ten minutes a day to just sitting quietly someplace and not doing anything, not looking at your phone not scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, not trying to get something done. Just sit there for five minutes, you know, have, make a cup of tea. And if you can sit outside, sit outside, uh, sit in your house and, and just look out the window for five minutes and as a practice, not as a haphazard kind of thing, but as 
what the Buddhists and some others call a practice. You're practicing, you know. You're practicing, you're strengthening your interior muscle, I would say. Can we double click on the on the point about journaling uh, for for a second? Because you know that there's this book called The Artist's Way, and and uh, one of the you know advice in that book is something called morning pages um, that I have uh, practiced myself. Um, that you you know in the morning you you set up some time to write and you write uh, for three pages straight uh, before you you drop your pen and and you keep you just keep doing it. It could be a stream of consciousness. It could be anything that emerges from uh your subconscious you know just just keep keep writing you know that's one way i've heard about as a a writer do you have other ways of journaling that you think would be useful i think that's a great way i mean that's that's therapeutic i think writing is almost always therapeutic even if you're writing fiction fiction you're where is the fiction coming from it's coming from your subconscious you know it's it reveals something a lot of times after I finish a novel, I'll look back and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize that's what I was writing about. You know, that's a whole, there's stuff in there that I had no idea was going to be in there. It's like a dream almost. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, keeping a journal is simple. It doesn't have to be the way you describe it. It can be. I think that's sort of fine. But, you know, if every other day you sit down and write, just write your thoughts or write what happened or write what you worried about or hopeful about or fearful about it's therapy and therapy. We, I think we all could use some kind of therapy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, what is the Roland Merlo um, magic for productivity? I mean, you've, you've written 24 books. I find that amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you able to, to do that? What's your, what's sort of your, your daily routine look like? Over here, my my boss Tyler Cowan has a podcast called Conversations with Tyler, and he asks this question a lot. He he says, you know, what's what's your production function? But basically, trying to get to the point of, you know, how how do you uh, how are you able to be productive? I think meditation has been very helpful to me. It it gets rid of some of the clutter, so that when I sit down to write, I don't have to wade through a lot of other stuff. I can pretty much get to the point of uh, what I'm trying to do, whether it's write an essay or fiction or, or non-fiction creative non-fiction i think that's part of it part of it is i and uh i've had a very supportive wife in this but we've made and i've made decisions that were really foolish financially really foolish <laughs> including when we had a one-year-old child and she wasn't working making money and i i had a university job at which uh, i was uncomfortable because of the politics and I resigned in protest and just said, I'm going to try to write and make, I mean, I'm going to try to just make enough money from writing uh, that we can live. And that's a foolish, foolish thing to do. But I did that I kind of on purpose to put myself in a position where I had to be productive. And for me, that has worked. I'm not, I'm not in a position to recommend that universally, you know, but <laughs> And it's been the cause of some stress. You know, there were times when we didn't have enough money. Amanda would say to me, we have enough money to pay the bills for the next two days, you know. And I'm like, well, I can't write a novel in the next two days. And I can't finish the one I'm working on in the next. So it was stressful, especially when we had kids, and which we had laid. And she stopped working when we had children working for money. And um, 
but that was kind of my way of creating an artificial push to produce. And so I couldn't, I didn't have the luxury to not produce. I think those two things would be the main answer to that question. Let's see. You mentioned golf earlier, and I understand that you have uh, quite the reputation in, in the field. Um, and so I'd be, remiss to, I'd be remiss to let you go without asking, you know, what the sport of golf can teach us about, you know, what we've been talking about. Uh, do you see any parallels between the, the practical advice you offer golfers, such as your, you know, 10 commandments for golf etiquette? You're and, uh, big door right there, Ben. Um, <laughs> I played a lot of other sports as a young person. I rode varsity crew in college. I played some hockey and baseball and karate and, um, you know, just anything I could, you know, basketball in the backyard kind of stuff. And I got into middle age and there were physical reasons why I couldn't do so. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't play hockey anymore. I couldn't do karate anymore. So all of that athletic passion got funneled into golf. I, I grew up playing, you know, five times a year with my dad on crappy municipal courses for eight bucks or something. And, but when I turned 45, I, I became a fanatic for golf and um, it's, it looks so stupid from the outside. I think, you know, a bunch of guys smoking cigars and riding around in these stupid carts and cursing and throwing up big clods of earth. And of course, there's the country club aspect of it, which is a whole other discussion. And that's not my life, uh, not the way I grew up and not not really the way I play now. But it's an incredible sport. I think mentally, it's just so demanding. It's completely humiliating more than any other sport I have ever played. You, You are guaranteed to humiliate yourself in front of friends and strangers every time you play golf. At the highest levels, even sometimes that can happen on the PGA Tour. And there's something to be said for that, you know, for for being humble that way. And if you keep a handicap, it tells you exactly how good or not good you are, which is, you know, you can't outbrag your handicap. You can't say I'm really, really good at golf, but I'm a 21 handicap. Well, if you're a 21 handicap, you're not really, really good. You're okay, not bad, you know, so. It's been great for me. I've played around the world. I've met some really nice people. I think one of the strangest things that I never would have expected that golf has given me is that I was never really comfortable around people with a lot of money. I had a chip on my shoulder. I admit that freely. I probably still have a little chip. But because I write about golf, I get to play. I have gotten to play at courses where the members are tremendously wealthy and I've met some really nice people and I realized some of them have given more money to charity than I will ever give in my life and have done wonderful things in the world. And some of them are asses, you know, I mean, it's, but that's been helpful to me to be able to, to actually meet the other, you know, from a working class standpoint, that, that other group, that that oppressed us and my in my upbringing it always was you know the people in the rich suburbs look at how they talk about us kind of a thing and golf has helped me reduce the size of the chip i would say <laughs> that is fascinating i heard you talk about this in a conversation that you know you, you come from a very big family you know and you you grew up with about 36 cousins or zero 
40 cousins. Wow. How did that, uh, you know, did that teach you anything about bridging uh, divides and, and differences? It's funny you should say that because most of my cousins on, especially my father's side, which is where I have most of them, are very conservative people, Republicans. And, you know, the guy, the cousin I played golf with yesterday is like one of the people closest to me in the world. And our politics are just very, very different. And we love each other, you know, and it's, I think it's easy to hate and it's easy even to dismiss people when you don't really know them. I saw that racially when I was a kid, I grew up in a completely white neighborhood, you know, and sometimes things were said that weren't good things. But I did notice when people from my neighborhood met an individual black person, it changed them in some way. You know, they, they treated them well because that's the way they were. They treated people well, but, but they could no longer make an abstraction of that person. You know, they knew that person. And I think, I don't know, I think any, any time we, we close off someone because of the group they belong to or the politics, the political views they hold. It's just such a negative thing. And if we actually could sit down with that, person, we might argue, we might end up not liking them, but at least we could say that's another human being. You know, that person has, I don't know, the, the, the main thing I would say, and I had a kind of argument with a friend of mine who's a gay woman about this. I, I feel like we're much, much, much more alike and we're different, you know, I mean, even, even physiologically, we're more, uh, men and women are more alike than different. We have two lungs, we have a heart, we have, you know, sure, there are differences, and sure, there are differences among people, but really, we love, we fear, we're born, we die, we feel pain, we opt for pleasure when we can, you know, that gets ignored in, um, and instead, we focus on how different we are from other people. I don't want to be saccharine about it. It's not It's not like, oh, we're all people. We're all the same. Everything will be fine. It's not like that. It takes work to overcome some of our differences. But I really do think we can. I think of it as going down to a level where we relate to somebody on that level rather than being up here and relating to them on the most superficial level. You know, I don't know. Maybe that sounds a little... A little simplistic for your. No, it's great, but that's what I think. It is wonderful. Um, what I tend to ask my my guests uh, to to reflect on whether they are optimistic or pessimistic about the future of of our society. So I, I wanted to give you the chance to to talk about that. Are you are you optimistic about the possibilities? You know, um, in the future about becoming more pluralistic divides um, or or not I'm by nature an optimistic person I'm a, a glass half full kind of person um, but I would say two things one I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic right now because I it seems like that the trends are very anti-democratic and I think again as the piece that you cited I don't think we I don't think enough of us really appreciate the fact that we could lose the democracy we have what's left of it. And we could, um, we could end up living in a, in a way in, in a place that would be really horrible. And I see some of that happening. The counter to that in my mind is that I'm wary of predictions. I've seen so many of them not come true at all, not be accurate at all. And the world sometimes has a way of balancing itself, not always, but 
But sometimes when things look really bleak, something that you cannot imagine happens and that it lightens up that picture a little bit. So I'm hopeful right now. I'm, I'm probably more pessimistic than I've been in a while, both about democracy and climate issues. But I've seen enough. I'm old enough to have seen enough in America where we swing to one extreme and then we swing back to the other extreme and then we hang around in the middle for a while. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that some of the extreme stuff that bothers me is going to have, have a long lifespan. What's your next book? I don't know. And that's very <laughs> unusual for me. I'm kind of in a hiatus, you know, um, right. Writing essays. I have, um, a series of essays called On the Plus Side mm-hmm. that I send out by subscription to people. And they, they're they not political. I'm trying to be just about life, just kind of the kinds of things that E.B. White wrote about or Thoreau wrote about, um, just life. And I've been spending a little bit of time on that and pondering what I want to do next as far as uh, novel goes. I have, I have one good idea, but if I, well, I think it's a good idea. And if I, talk about it, it will lose its juice. So I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> I see. Now, before we bring this to a close, uh, do you have any advice for our audience, uh, call to action or anything like that? Mm, not a big advice person. I mean, I, I think that assumes that I know something that they don't know. I I guess I would cite, I, I, my wife has been away helping her sister for a while, and I'm, I hope she doesn't see this like today because I'm surprising her by getting that kitchen floor refinished which has not been refinished in 25 years and it really bothered her uh and the reason i bring it up is i had a couple of guys working in the house and i when they came i shook their hand i said what's your name you know there's a some beer out on the porch if you want to have a beer grab it make yourself at home and one of the guys especially was just stunned that i would treat him that way you know he Mm -hmm. said the last house we worked at they put up plastic to keep the sawdust from going in the house and the people would speak to us through the plastic. And oh. to me, it's, do you know the book I Am Thou by Martin Buber? Are you familiar with that book? I'm not. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. And it and he talks about how you relate to another person and seeing them as another full human being and trying to, even if you're buying a donut from them, you know, you're going to buy the donut, you use them to serve you the donut, but you can do it in such a way that you, you respect their humanity while you're doing it. And I think, I don't, I, I wouldn't call it advice, but that's like a principle in my life. I try to operate by that. And I'm, I think it's a positive thing. I think that might, that might bridge some of the differences. Yeah. And it, it seems like that, that comes up too, when you're doing, um, you know, retail type jobs. And you, you talk about this too, when you were talking about working in the, in the toll booth, where it made a huge difference when someone would stop by. And it wasn't just about the transaction, but yeah, if they asked you about you know your day or just some some random thing. I just say hi. Mm-hmm. No, I mean I, I brought up my girls to to look at if someone's serving them in any way, cafeteria in the in the school or cleaning a room that they're in or washing their car when they go through the car wash, look at the person, you know, you don't have to have a 10 minute conversation, ask them about the details of their life, but you can look at them. You can wave them. You can say thank you to them. You know, when we were in Spain, we were walking part of the Camino de Santiago, my wife and I, and 
we were in a little town and there was a man in a, like an orange uniform whose job it was to sweep the little corners of the alleys and the streets, you know, and she went up to him and just said, I just want to thank you. The city really looks good. And you could tell that that almost never happens to that guy, you know, and it was a beautiful thing for her to do. And so, you know, you can't have a, an involved conversation with every toll collector and donut seller you meet, but you can, you can, you know, say, how are you doing today? Or what time did you wake up today? Or what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Or, you know, I sat on the New York subway next to a guy who I didn't know at all. And he was eating something. And I turned around and I said, what are you eating? How, how, how is it? You know, just a little mini human connection. He said, I'm having cabbage and beans. It's pretty good. You know, I said, good. It looks good. It looks good. I like that. You know, just a little thing like that, I think, might help a little bit in the, in this nation of ours. Yeah. We could all be a little bit nicer. A little bit, you know, or just yeah. more real, more human. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that note, um, I'd like to say a big thank you to you for for uh, spending your afternoon with us. Uh, we really appreciate uh, this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Big thank you right back at you. Thanks for having me.